And we also have a group here on campus called the, uh, basically, Greater Lafayette Security Professionals, which is basically our information security professionals in the local area that we meet about once a month and we talk about various topics. And if you're interested in participating in that, it's certainly open to students as well. Please let me know after the, uh, after the presentation here. So some of the things we're going to talk about today are related to some of the challenges we see in information security, specifically in the university environment. I have a variety of experience in the corporate world, and the challenges in the university are uh, very interesting. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that. And usually the top three that bubble up to the top anytime you talk about information security is people, process, and technology. And so we'll focus a little bit on that today. And then I'll talk a little bit about how budgets in the university environment can, in fact, uh, impact what we do. And then regulations and compliance. And then we'll talk a little bit about the unique assets of the university and unique threats that we have. So we'll start off, as I mentioned, with kind of this overview that you're probably very familiar with and have come across before in these types of discussions. And first up, we'll talk about the people involved. And what's interesting here is that the changing landscape that we have in information security has really required us to get a lot more people involved with the security process. And so some of the skills that are needed to address these issues um, really require technical knowledge, but also leadership qualities. Oops. And I mentioned that because, <clears throat> excuse me, we have to be able to set a direction and address uh, security challenges and finding the right leadership and people management necessary to do that is very essential. It's uh, often you'll find in the university environments a lot of technical people uh, and a lack of leadership. And the issues with that is you might be working on projects that may not be relevant to the strategy that you're trying to address or just trying to run the day-to-day -day operations without the right uh, management in place. And so while we, we might, as you know, technical employees, we might like to joke about how managers make silly mistakes and do silly things and may not understand the technical environment, um, having the right people in place to provide that technical leadership is essential as well. And we're going to be working on a variety of projects, so obviously having good project management skills is essential, but also time management because you're going to get a lot of projects thrown your way. Um, I think I've lost count at currently the number of projects I have in my box right now, so it is significant. But also, a uh, last skill that's always important, and you may hear this anytime you talk about careers in the modern workforce, is communication skills. And that is being able to convey very complex and complicated ideas to people who do not have a similar understanding. And so communication becomes very essential, whether that be presentations like this, uh, email, written communication, those sorts of things. Uh, certifications we typically talk about as being kind of essential for the job market, and they're becoming more important. You may find a lot of job postings nowadays uh, list as a requirement a specific certification. Uh, a lot of them may be professional type certifications like the CISSP. They might be more technical oriented certifications that deal specifically with products. So an example of that might be the Cisco uh, certifications, Microsoft certifications as well. Anyways, finding skilled security professionals is becoming a little more difficult. Uh, we have several open positions right now and, and a long list of resumes to look at. 
but even looking through resumes is not always a good indicator of what somebody's effective information, sk information security skill is. And some of that is helped by some certifications, but still it doesn't address uh, necessarily how well the person does at project management or time management or communications, and those sorts of things are very important. As there are uh, higher demand for security professionals, there's also a smaller number of security professionals out there. Uh, they have a selection of, of the jobs they may want to do. And uh, typically, in supply and demand situation, the price required to hire those individuals goes up. And so universities are challenged in trying to find the money to uh, pay higher salaries. So something to keep in mind. In terms of policies and procedures, as you are probably aware by now, you know, policies do not always keep up with the technology. Uh, we like to say that uh, you know, when Congress enacts laws, that it's usually 10 years behind the technology curve the day that law is enacted. Well, similar things can be said for the university environment. And the process to get a policy in place or to get one updated, especially at a university of the size of Purdue, is it takes a while. It has to go through a lot of committees, a lot of review, and everybody has to weigh in on whether that's a good idea or not. And there's wording choices that are always uh, examined and pondered over many times. And so it can take years for some of these updates to occur. Meanwhile, the environment's changed. New threats have come up. Uh, and the policy that goes into effect, you know, five years after it was put and uh, started down the road is, may, not, may not be effective when it's actually implemented. So those are issues that we typically run across. Part of the problem with having a lot of policies is we may not have the follow-up implementation guidance that tells you how to implement a particular policy. These can be typically what we might call standards or guidelines. And these are more the nitty-gritty technical details of how to implement a policy and how to configure a system or whatever for use in the environment that meets that policy. And so typically, that knowledge is um, <clears throat> left to just a few individuals in the university that have kind of an ad hoc process. There's nothing really documented about how they do their job. <coughs> but it's very important that we figure out how that works because if for some reason someday they find a new job or they get hit by a bus, uh, we want to make sure that that knowledge stays with the university and doesn't walk out the door with them. And so those are always issues that we want to keep in mind whenever we deal with policies. And this is true of, of corporate environment as well. Um, in terms of technology, universities seem to be a lot like corporations. We have a lot of new tech, and we have a lot of legacy tech. And even the newest corporations out there still run on mainframes and COBOL. And sometimes that is true for university environments as well. And so moving away from um, a lot of universities are starting to move away from this idea that we'll build our own apps that we use internally. And instead, they're going to a model where they purchase services or products from outside and they have no hand in the development, only in the implementation of it. And so that's a challenge because a lot of people who have the in-depth understanding of how systems work no longer work for the university. They work for somebody else, and you pay them a lot of money for support. So if we have a product and you have a problem, you don't try to debug it yourself. You pick up the phone, you call Platinum Support, and say, hey, I'm having an issue. Step me through how to fix that. Um, there's a high cost for that in terms of paying for the support contract. But having high, uh, a high number of people who have in-depth knowledge on staff is also a high cost. And so there's a trade-off there. Whether we want to have a significant number of very smart people on staff that know, very, that know one particular system in-depth, 
or if we just have a problem occasionally we need to call support we can do that so there's there's a a balance there that has to be made <clears throat> uh, the other last comment there on on architects we have a fair number of architects that, are, that deal with information uh, they might deal with storage they might deal with systems or networks and typically they're in the process of evaluating solutions from vendors and not designing solutions so I have a software background and and I, I like to think that a software architect is more about building software designing software how to figure out how to how to effectively use uh, or hack, uh, how to effectively develop an application that meets certain requirements under certain constraints. Nowadays, it's more about uh, architects spending their time evaluating a vendor solution and picking the best one. So that's kind of changed. <clears throat> uh, university networks, as you know, are fairly open. We do allow quite a bit of stuff. We don't really restrict what you do on the network. We uh, do not really regulate what goes out of the network. Uh, and there's a variety of reasons for that, but mostly we want to make sure that uh, your experience at the university allows you to explore, to learn. Some of that allows us, uh, requires us to maybe not have as many security controls in place that kind of prevent that knowledge or learning or collaboration. So we have to balance that as well. In a corporate environment, everyone I've worked in, there's a firewall at the border and they don't allow traffic out. If you want to browse the web, you do it through a proxy, and that proxy may have limits on what you can do, and we don't have anything like that here. Most universities don't. Um, we do have a lot of servers and services, if you may have noticed. There's more than just one Purdue website you go to, right? You go to Blackboard, you go to uh, the main Purdue site, you go to the HR site, you go to the graduate school site, you go to the, each department has their own website. We have a lot of servers and a lot of services out there. That is also prime targets for people who might want to explore and learn more about how our internal systems work. We don't have a centralized way of managing all the devices on our network. We do manage some of our central IT systems that we do have control over, but it comes to your individual desktop or laptop or mobile device. We don't have anything over that, and we don't want to. Uh, we don't want to. We don't really want to know what you do with your device, uh, although we can see some of that on the network side. But, but we're not going to go down and say, "Hey, you have to install this particular piece of software so we can go in and." you know, keep you safe. That's not really our mission to do that. We don't want to. That's not a business we want to be in. So universities are fairly old organizations and typically in older organizations things change over time. They evolve over time. And specifically when it comes to IT, you know, the, the first computer that a university may have purchased or even built was usually done by a department. That might have been electrical engineering, it might have been computer science or math, applied math. Those departments typically, way back in the olden days, would say, hey, we need a computer to do this particular research or whatever. And then eventually, um, computers became a little more ubiquitous across the university. And they develop in the departments themselves, kind of on the bottom layers. There's not really a focus initially. There's really, you know, central IT, that's a, con that's a foreign concept uh, to an older university because there was no such thing as IT. They were just computers, right? And so that has changed, and as the university goes forward in time, there's this need to uh, reduce cost, to centralize control, and so central IT becomes a factor in, in doing that. But it's very hard to do uh, once you've already done that. Um, part of uh, bringing all these IT groups together is to obviously save money, 
because you have fewer administrators to control a significant number of machines. You can reduce the number of resources you have to the level you need for that purpose. And instead of having uh, having a you know IT departments in every uh, school or college or department, those could be centrally managed. But that's still very hard to do. There's a lot of politics involved in trying to pull that control away. And so um, part of the problem with that uh, going back and trying to say, hey, we need to centralize control again, is that we're not going uh, to make too much progress with that. And it also limits our ability to protect information and systems. So I'll quickly talk about budgetary issues. It's usually feast or famine, right? Uh, some years are good and we get a lot of funding that departments can use to purchase uh, additional resources. Uh, sometimes they don't. Uh, if they're on a research grant and they get money to buy equipment, sometimes they overbuy. Uh, when you file the grant, you know, a year before you actually get to the point where you can purchase stuff with that money, you may have spec'd out something very significant, but then in that year, the price has dropped, and so you can buy more. So you don't want to waste your money, and so you buy more. And so some of those systems sit around and, and are unused. Whoops. I'm sorry. You don't need to know about Taekwondo. Thank you for pointing that out. Okay. Okay, back to that. So uh, research grants um, are a way that, unfortunately, uh, some departments may overbuy and have a lot of idle equipment sitting around, and they don't maintain it. And that becomes a source of it uh, for attackers to be very curious about what those systems have. Uh, typically, on a research grant, you're also paying research assistants to manage those systems. Um, and they may be very skilled in the, the field of study, but I don't know if they're very skilled at system management and, and maintaining uh, system security. Uh, also, when we're talking about central IT, uh, they typically have bigger budgets, can buy lots of equipment. Uh, but over time, uh, that changes. So they might be able to buy a lot of equipment at one point in time, but then the budget drops and then suddenly they've got to cut back. And usually the cutbacks occur in staff. And sometimes the more experienced administrators that know all about how to run a system and how to secure it walk out the door for a variety of reasons. And so that's always a concern as well. Uh, in terms of regulations and compliance, uh, the university, even though it is a quasi-state uh, government entity, still has to comply with a lot of standards and uh, compliance, such as uh, FERPA, which is Federal Education uh, Rights and Privacy Act, which protects your student data. And then GLBA, which is, uh, deals more with financial institutions, but Purdue is considered a financial institution for a variety of reasons. One, because of your student loans. We have information about you and, and the loan amounts, and that's, that's considered uh, part of GLBA. HIPAA is related to healthcare information. And so even if we have researchers on campus that collect information about patients uh, undergoing medical treatment, that is data that's considered uh, PHI, and we're required to uh, make sure we protect that. And finally, PCI, which is the payment card industry standard, specifically for data security. And that is because we accept credit card payments. So if you go down to the union and you uh, swipe your card, uh, that system has to be PCI compliant. So. so we'll talk a little bit about the assets of the university. And one of the big ones is the research that we do and the intellectual property generated by that. And that can be very interesting to a lot of attackers, potentially. And so some of that is 
published inter published information that would that uh, certainly you want to share that. It might be patented information. It might be stuff that's in the in the process of being patented, and there might also be uh, multimedia stuff, copyright material. All of that is very interesting to a lot of people out there. We don't always protect that adequately. Uh, some professors may have that information on their laptop, and they do a lot of traveling, and they lose laptops. Some people might have it on a on an open lab or on a system in an open lab, and that could walk off just as easily as well. And so, while we have a lot of data on our network, we don't necessarily have great control over it yet. We do have more requirements lately, depending on the type of research, where we have to protect that information a little better. And so, I've got a couple projects where that is a requirement, and that's usually federal government research in specific uh, research areas. Another asset, which may not seem obvious, is your user account. Everybody here has a Purdue career account, and that career account gets you access to a variety of university services. And so that becomes a way for uh, attackers to take a great interest in getting access to that account. Some of the ways they do that is through malware on systems, and once they compromise the account, we see them do a lot of interesting things. Um, I believe in the month of July, we had almost 500 accounts compromised here at the university. And so part, and has anybody had received a call from the customer service center asking you to reset your password? No one will admit to it. Okay, good. <laughs> good, you don't want that. That basically means that your account was discovered as being used by somebody other than you. And typically, they might be using it to uh, send out spam messages. Typically, that's how we find it, typically. Um, but it could also be used to host phishing or malware sites. So if you have uh, an account and somebody discovers that they can create a web, web uh, a couple web pages on your account, they'll use it to create a phishing site. And then they'll spread spam messages and phishing messages elsewhere to other, other places, and then the people clicking on those links will bring them to our site. And that doesn't look good for Purdue, and we don't want to, uh, we want to make sure we get a hold of that. And so we're trying to make sure that that doesn't happen. So we have a variety of ways of detecting when, when accounts are compromised, um, and we're improving that, that, but it is a difficult one, especially because we got, like I said, almost 500 accounts in one month. We also have significant IT resources, both in processor capability, storage, and our network bandwidth. So produce connection to the commodity internet right now is 10 gigabits per second, and our connection to the research network is 100 gigabits per second. And so somebody who has access to that amount of bandwidth might want to use that bandwidth. And so sometimes they're using it to send out a ton of spam, for example, because we have such a fast connection to the world and we have a lot of resources and systems that can be compromised. There's a, a significant number of spam messages you can send with that amount of bandwidth available to you. So that's one thing they do. In terms of high-performance computing, we got a lot of that. You may have heard of our research community clusters. And those servers are... Uh, not those in particular, but when we have a lot of uh, bandwidth or a lot of CPU available, uh, some malware likes to use that to do interesting things. Pat crack passwords is one good example, but mining bitcoins is another one, and that's a fairly recent one. Not too recent, maybe in the last year, now that bitcoins have kind of been a little more interesting in terms of their price. Um, there's malware out there, and we do know of it being here on the campus where it will actually use the CPU on the system of the box it compromises to mine bitcoins. You don't get those bitcoins, sadly. They go to somebody else. Uh, but they are stealing uh, CPU for that. 
And then storage. Uh, in the past, when I was a student, you know, a long time ago now, uh, FTP servers were often compromised and copyrighted software was placed on that. And then everybody, they would send out a note on IRC or on the message boards and say, hey, I just put all my stuff on this really fast server with a really great band, you know, really super fast bandwidth. Come and download it. And those were called WARES sites, W-A-R-E-Z. Uh, we, we don't see that as much these days because storage is so cheap, but still that is something that did happen a lot. In terms of threats, we've got malware, which we've talked a little bit about um, recently. Those are still, um, we have Antel malware protection for some of our internal systems, and we have a way to push out updates automatically to those and then get al alerts on events uh, such as malware attack on a particular machine on somebody's desk. We can see those. We don't see that for any students, and, and some departments use it, and, and others not yet, but we hope to get them on it as well. So we have some of that, um, but these systems can still be compromised by zero-day attacks, uh, exploits due to poor software uh, configuration or lack of updates. Those are always an issue. As I mentioned, we don't control student systems, so that's always a problem. We do encourage people to install anti-malware software. We make it freely available uh, from the Secure Purdue website. If you have not installed that, I would encourage you to do that. That is paid for by the university and is available to you as a student. But even those systems can be compromised too. Uh, as we know, anti-malware software doesn't catch everything. So you should run two or three versions of anti-malware software, right? That'll work better. Um, and finally, um, you know, if you're in a department where they have reduced their IT staff or they're in the process of hiring additional IT staff, uh, sometimes the people with that have their end device are often asked to manage that device. And so I know quite a few professors. I don't know any of them being system administrators. And uh, they're more interested in making the machine work, not necessarily work safely or securely. So there's, that's always a challenge as well. That comes back also to misconfigured systems. We do see a lot of that. Uh, some of this is related to having information about how to secure systems, but we want to make sure that uh, that, that is uh, available to users, uh, specifically some departments that may not have the significant IT resources available to them might not make the right choices in terms of protecting their systems. So we might see uh, students who may have systems that they've configured uh, downloaded Linux or something like that, and they said, ooh, look at all these new services, and they'll just turn them on. Not always configuring those services. Uh, maybe just experiment, and we encourage that, but there's, there's, uh, there's some security issues there that always uh, we should be aware of. But, uh, you know, we hope to promote various security techniques to prevent those things, but that doesn't always happen. Also, uh, if you're a research assistant and you're asked to do some software work, uh, you might write some really great software with a lot of bugs in it. And that happens. And so, or you might write your particular application on top of a framework, but you never updated that framework. And so that framework has a, a number of vulnerabilities in it. And so part of maintaining secure systems is making sure the frameworks and software you're using are up to date, patched. Uh, and then restricted so that you're only limiting access to a particular number of networks or systems. So if you do find that you are writing software and you're not quite sure of its security, at least limit who has access to it. Don't allow the world to see it if it only somebody at Purdue needs to. Okay.
similar uh, issues. Well, we've already talked most of that. Adventurous students. We love adventurous students. We do. I mean, the whole point in coming to the university is to learn and to do interesting things. Um, we just ask you to be careful in how you do those things. And so, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're here to encourage and we want you to learn. Um, but if you feel the need that breaking into a, a system to prove your ability is, is a cool thing to do, uh, let's not do that. We will find you something that we don't mind you breaking into if you really have an interest in doing that. Uh, see me later. <laughs> but um, so uh, some of the things we used to do as students on our own computers was, were as part of our learning process, uh, typically crash those machines. And you know, once you uh, take that programming in C course and you learn about fork, first thing you want to do is run a fork bomb. And it's a lot of fun. Just do it on your own machine. Uh, some people like to run those on uh, multi-user servers and uh, bring down the whole machine, and that uh, that's never good. So don't do that. Uh, I will find you a, a, a Linux VM if you'd like, and you can run it on that and crash it to your heart's content. You can go in and delete the whole file system while the machine is running. That's fun. Uh, just don't just watch where you're doing it, right? So. Anyways, uh, we've had issues with web crawlers. People, students write web crawlers to crawl the Purdue network and slow down and saturate the network. We, hey, web crawlers, we love them. Just throttle them up a little bit. That's all we ask. <laughs> um, and finally, uh, trying to find exploits in systems. Uh, part of the challenge we have in the information security field, and specifically uh, at Sirius, was we want to teach students how to use uh, vulnerability assessment tools, but we have to write, find the right environment in which to do that. Uh, running uh, a vulnerability scanner against a production system on the university uh, network would not be really a good idea, but we can find ways for that for you to learn how to use those tools, and I encourage that. Those are tools that we use all the time, but we have a very specific target in mind, and we make sure everybody knows we're doing it, and we have clearance for it first. Okay, but other than that, hey. If, if anybody's actually very interested in doing any of these uh, types of things, please see me later. We'll find ways for that to happen. We have the, uh, the Serious Student Association, which we've talked about uh, multiple times, uh, setting up a cluster of machines for that purpose. And we may just need to kick that project off a little quicker. So, so this is kind of a, a little short talk, but uh, I'll have time for questions if you have any. Um, but specifically, I wanted to wrap up and talk about that, the fact that the university has a lot of similar assets to the corporation. It's just how we protect them is a little different. We encourage openness and collaboration. We want you to be here to learn. We want you to learn how to use uh, security assessment tools to build secure systems. We're all for that. We're great. You know, that's great. We want to do that. But we just need to find the right environment in which you can do that and not affect other parts of the university. So. Um, and finally, uh, we're involving information security management, specifically at the university. We have a lot of new and interesting security tools that we're trying to use to help us protect the university's network and you as a student population as well. And so we've got a lot of interesting things going on there. So that's kind of short and sweet, but uh, are there any questions specifically? Is anybody here interested in... Uh, One second. There we go. Sorry. 
anybody here looking to be uh, to do uh, become information security professionals? Is this an interest of anybody? To security architects or security engineers, security researchers. Couple hands. Okay, great. We have uh, uh, a great need for information security researchers and engineers, and I don't know if you've seen job postings lately, if that's of interest. So there's a lot of work out there in the field. Uh, so there's typically uh, when I work with a lot of other security engineers, they have a variety of skill sets. They're not focused on uh, antivirus software or system security specifically for an operating system. They do a wide variety of stuff. And so having a wide set of skills in understanding how networking works, understanding how operating system works, operating systems work. That's all very important. So I'd encourage you to kind of broaden your skills in that area if that's uh, a secure uh, path that you want to go down uh, in your future career. We also have a great need for leaders. And so if you worked in the corporate world, and I made the joke about managers earlier, uh, technically I'm a manager now. I have people that report to me. So you can make all those jokes, and I would probably laugh with you. But... Uh, it is, a, it is a new challenge for me, specifically, having to manage a group of individuals and figure out how to best apply their knowledge and skills. So having that understanding of leadership is also very important as well. So if you find the opportunity to take a, an organizational leadership class or anything like that, uh, I would encourage that as well. That's uh, also very helpful. If you want to rise to the ranks of of uh, chief information security officer or chief security officer, that's definitely a skill you'll need to have. So it's very important. Yes? Where do you think, like, I used a lot of remote access mm -hmm. on secure systems, so we had a VPN connection. Yep. Um, and then originally it was just a VPN. You sign in and you're, you're in, and then it went to phone factor. Where right. when you sign in, it calls you, and you have to press blah blah blah. Uh, where do you think that fits into this? Is that something that more and more are going to? Or we we have at at the university uh, a set of two-factor authentication systems. Right now, if you're familiar with the boiler key, which I don't have on me at the moment, the boiler key is basically an RSA key token that generates a new random number every you know seemingly 60 seconds. So un universities are using those. Um, we are looking to replace the boiler key with something in the future with what that will be yet we're not quite sure. Uh, phone factor is an interesting one in that, in that it calls you back and there's a lot of large uh, social networking sites using that similar approach, uh, Facebook, Google being the other two and Apple has something similar to that. And so that is a mechanism that we are looking to use in the university environment. Mostly it applies to uh, staff and uh, faculty right now, but I believe this future solution we're looking at will be available to everybody that's on the network. Uh, whether we're having, having the system call you is another question, or whether you have a device that generates a, a unique key that's valid for only a short period of time. So we're still evaluating that. So. Yes, having understanding of authentication is very important, as well as remote access uh, tools and availability for, for those types of solutions. Very important. Yes? So you talked early on about ad hoc processes. Yes. And knowledge transfer is a universal problem to any 
organization of any size, what have you found that works effectively? Like technologies like wikis and SharePoint or policies or? Right. Um, at Sirius, we used a wiki to kind of communicate that transfer of knowledge. And uh, we had to put quite a bit of information in there on how to manage our own systems. And then I would go to the other members of the team and say, okay, I wrote something up. Do you understand it? Does it make sense? You know, if you were in an emergency situation and I was not here, would this be enough for you to understand? And so I kind of instill that perspective on them when they look at it, just to make sure that, that I wrote what's helpful for them. At, uh, at ITAP, they have uh, a SharePoint system, and we do use SharePoint for some things. However, the transition from an older SharePoint version to a newer SharePoint version did not go very well. And so we're trying to correct that. Uh, but we have a lot of information in SharePoint. It's just not as easy to get to right now. But uh, I prefer using wikis, honestly. So it sounds like you don't just write something, put it on the wiki, and let it linger. You actually do some kind of yep. validation. Yeah, first. I try to go to the, the intended audience and make sure they understand what I've written. And I encourage the team to do that as well. You know, So if they've written something and they let me know, I look at it from a perspective of, okay, if you weren't here and I couldn't ask you a question, would this be enough? And so making sure that the information we have available would be helpful in, a, in an emergency situation. Because that's what we typically want to that's not the only reason, but a lot of times it's either questions about things you don't do very often, or it's the person who has the, the in-depth knowledge is not available. And I want to make sure that we capture that in a way that, that is helpful. And so right now, I prefer wikis, but I'm kind of stuck with SharePoint. So. I don't want to be using it, trust me. <laughs> Any other uh, Questions related to that? Organizational questions? Industry related? Anybody interested in pursuing certification? Yep. Have you looked at any particular kinds like a CISSP or CISA? Right. I hope the CISSP at one point, but I think probably need to Right. Yeah, CISSP is generally considered uh, a fairly good professional certification. The, the, the trick with certification is not everybody agrees that, they're, that they have value. The value in, that I see in, in a lot of the professional ones is that they require a work experience. They require continuing education. And so not only do you just take a test, you have to maintain that certification over time if you want to continue to hold it. And so there's value in that because you're required to make sure your skills are up to date. And so you need to prove that you've taking courses or that you've read a book or you've done certain activities that will advance your understanding and knowledge so you're on top of the technology. So that's where it does have some value. The challenge for uh, grads out of college is getting that work experience in. And so if you have uh, co-op jobs or internships, those can count. So make note of those as well. Um, but if you have a college degree, it's only a four-year work requirement, so it's a little, a little, you shorten it by a year. So, but that's something to keep in mind. Uh, like I said, a lot of job postings you'll see require it now. It could be, you know, if you're doing an auditor type position, it might be a CISA. If it's more of a management level position, CISSP. If it's a management of a technical function, it might, it might be a CISM, which is 
uh, information systems management. If you are looking to become a networking expert, you might be looking at the Cisco Certified Internetworking Expert Security. You know, they've got a whole classification now for just the security aspect of, of Cisco products. The, the only trick with those are that uh, if you're going to be working with Cisco gear all the time, that's great until your company buys Procurve. <laughs> and it's not that you can't apply the same concepts that you learned for the Cisco certification to a new set of hardware. It's just that there's a mismatch there. And so that's something to keep in mind. If, if you know, with I have a CISSP and I'm using my Mac today and suddenly tomorrow I have to use Windows, well, that certification doesn't really change, right? Uh, my understanding of the technology uh, based on my knowledge of the certification and the requirements of that are really the important part. That book of knowledge is uh, the common understanding that the, that the professional certification provides you is really the key point there. Any other questions? No? Certainly there's some. Anybody doing interesting research in information security? Or want to be doing interesting research in security? Yeah? Okay. Well, you're supposed to ask me questions. I'm not supposed to ask you questions. So. All right. Well, thank you for your time then.